all the men in here, let me have a little heart to heart with you just for a second. And all the ladies, you can just kind of eavesdrop on what's happening here. Guys, I'm personally um, pumped for this year's men's retreat. A really great friend of mine, Ryan Williams, pastor in Albuquerque, he's going to be speaking. He's a super gifted preacher and teacher. Most importantly, though, he's an Aussie. And so that makes everything he says that much smoother, right, and nice. And so, men, you don't want to miss this time. Seriously, I know, I know where a lot of you are. You're pondering, you're, you're waiting, you're contemplating, you're procrastinating, you're praying about it, you know, whatever that means. But I found in times like this, um, Henry V in that great Shakespearean play always has the best words in his stirring speech, and I quote men, and gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed that they were not there. And hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speaks that fought with us. Men, don't be accursed, right? Don't hold your manhoods cheap. And most importantly, don't be lame. We want you to come to this men's retreat. You can sign up at the hub on the way out. Pastor Scott will be there. He'll answer any and all questions. Um, seriously, guys, it's going to be an awesome, awesome time. And hope you can join us. Now, somehow we're going to make the shift to Romans chapter 8. So open your Bibles there. Now, coming out, coming out of this last couple of years um, and out of this COVID season, you know, we have a lot of new folks. And because we have so many new folks, I thought it would be really helpful just to take a couple of minutes to explain to everyone why we do what we do here on Sunday in terms of preaching and teaching and the message. We, we try to avoid playing what I kind of call theological pinata. In other words, showing up every Sunday, swinging wildly, blindfolded with a stick, preaching on this, preaching on that. Um, they're not necessarily being any rhyme or reason. We're just sort of responding to the moment, what's happening in culture, society, all those sorts of things. And, and understand, and sometimes that's okay. Sometimes we need to stop uh, from time to time to address specific issues or topics or themes that arise. But by and large, we preach in two ways, or there's, there's two things that I think distinguish about the way we preach, and this is not unique to us. I mean, I believe that, that thousands of churches who are faithfully preaching the gospel do, do the same. But first, we, we preach expositionally, and second, we preach methodically. And I know both of those words send a shiver up your spine, so let me just explain what they are. By expositionally, the word means to expose. What we do is we attempt to expose the meaning of God's word. So in other words, the point of the passage is the point of the message. We don't want to just take God's word and use it as a launching point to kind of say what we really want to say, as my friend Dave Harvey would say, uh, an opinion in desperate need of a text. We, we, we try to avoid that. The, the point of the message is the point of the passage. So that's what we mean by expositionally. Methodically means that we typically pe preach through books of the Bible or sections of the Bible, verse upon verse, passage upon passage, chapter upon chapter, book upon book. And, and the reason we do that is that we really want the Word of God to set the agenda for what we talk about here on a Sunday. What we find is that by preaching through a, a book of the Bible or a passage of the Bible, it keeps us as leaders and even as people from gravitating to those topics that we're most comfortable with, right? And by the same token, conversely, it steers us towards topics that we might otherwise want to conveniently avoid. 
because they're culturally insensitive or because um, people might get angry by hearing them and respond in a certain way. And so we want to preach expositionally. We preach methodically through the text. But let me tell you what often happens. And, and I've seen this time and time again. It's just an amazing thing. That, that through that discipline of preaching through God's word, what God does providentially is that many times whatever it is that we happen to be walking through as a church family or walking through as a culture or walking through um, in the world, God kind of brings what I call a, a providential collision between his word and what's happening in our lives. And such is the, the case with our text this morning. You know, we've been preaching through the book of Romans. And, and remember, Romans has a context. And the context is that the people, the Christians in the church at Rome, were living a very unstable sort of life. There, there, was, there was not a lot they could hang their hat on. Culturally, they were ostracized. Um, remember that the Christian Jews had been cast out of Rome by Claudius some years before, had just returned, and they find themselves in, in, the, in the middle of this sort of this cultural upheaval, this cultural mass. They have Rome breathing down their neck. They, um, they're, they're a strange sort of people who gather together and sing and pray and take the bread and the juice and say it's the body and the blood of Christ. And it's, they find themselves with not a certain place to lay their head. There's not a lot of firm footing around them. And I can't help but think um, that this time, this place, not just here personally or in our city or culturally, but, but even in the world, even as we contemplate one sovereign nation attacking another sovereign nation and just this sort of like ambiguous sort of hazy threat of, of, of nuclear war and um, instability and massive suffering on a global scale, not to mention just what a lot of us have experienced this season in our personal lives. As I said before, an inordinate amount of suffering, I think, for a church our size this season. A lot of funerals, a lot of terminal diagnoses, a lot of heartache, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. And I think it's into the middle of this when we're asking, what can we count on? Where, where can we ultimately find and ground our hope? And what Paul is going to show us, just as he showed the church in Rome 2,000 years ago, it's not just what's happening out there, but God is doing a work in his people God is wanting to give us a rock-solid assurance about who we are and about our standing in this world, and but most importantly, about our standing with God. And so I think you're going to find this text, Lord willing, encouraging and hopeful for the season that you find yourself. So we're going to be in Romans 8 this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to read God's Word together. We're just reading verses 5 through 11. Remember, we're slowing it way down here in Romans 8 because there's so much to, to dig into. And so it's, it's so good. So let's, we're going to start with verse 5. We're going to read through verse 11. Listen to the word of God. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. 
But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but if in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray. Father, this is a word that we all need to hear. Lord, we look around us and so much is broken and so much is fading and so much is deteriorating and so much is unpredictable and unstable. But there are things, Lord, that are true about you and true about those who know you that are absolutely rock solid, 100% guaranteed. And so, Father, I pray that by being filled with that assurance this morning, we would be freed from self-preoccupation. We would be freed to be on mission. We would be free to honor you and glorify you in all that we do. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Please take a seat. You know, Susan and I moved to Tallahassee in 1996, and what took us by surprise was not the fact that this was a rabid college town full, full of Seminoles. We came from um, a college town sort of context, so, so that, was, that was not unfamiliar. But what really took us by surprise is we found out very, very quickly there were only two kinds of people in Tallahassee, right? And they weren't divided by being a Seminole or by being a Gator, right? Because there's a lot of people who weren't Seminole fans. Rather, it was divided between those who were Gator fans and those who detested them, right? Now, not everyone was a Seminole fan, but all non-Gators, I mean, we just, we were, we were perfectly united. Like, we just felt right at home coming in here for our hatred for the team that plays football down south in the sewer. Do I get an amen? Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Well, Paul reminds us that and John Stewart's one of our elders. He's a gator. He's been listening to this for 25 years, and God bless him. But anyway, Paul reminds us in this text, despite appearances, there actually are only two kinds of people, right? And remember, our culture wants to relentlessly assign you and I to specific categories. It relentlessly wants to put people into boxes and groups, whether it's race, socioeconomic status, political party, Sports team, denomination, nationality, ethnicity, language, political ideology, vaccination status, you get it. I mean, everybody is a part of some group and oftentimes a, a part of multiple groups at the same time. But what Paul is going to remind us is that all of these man-made categories are simply that, man-made, and as such are fading away. And they are, they are revealing to fundamental categories that have eternal spiritual 
meaning. And Paul wants us to understand in a crystal clear way what kind of person we are. Who, who, who or what lives in us or doesn't live within us. And because of that, we're going we're gonna to have, it's going to set a trajectory not just for the way that we live, but also, as Paul tells us, it's going to set a trajectory for the way that we die. And so that's our two points. So two kinds of lives, number one, then followed by two kinds of deaths, both determined by who you truly are. All right, so, here, so let, let's dig in and we'll unpack this. Two kinds of lives. Look at verse 5. Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, let me say something at the onset here. This is a, this is a passage that's not primarily about Paul exhorting believers who are filled with the Spirit to not live like unbelievers who don't have the Spirit or, but are instead in the flesh. That, that's not Paul's primary point here. Now, Paul makes that point all through Romans 8. He's always talking to believers about don't, don't walk in the flesh, walk in the Spirit. In fact, we talked about this in verse 4 last week. But that's not Paul's principal point here. Paul's principal point in verse 5 is an ontological statement. It's a statement of fact. It's a statement by virtue of itself is true by definition. And here it is. Paul says, those who set the minds on the flesh are flesh. Those who set their minds on the spirit are the spirit. In other words, Paul says there are two groups of people. There are those who are indwelt with the Spirit of Christ, and then there are those who are not. And if you are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ this morning, in other words, you are someone who has placed your faith in Christ. You are trusting in him. The Holy Spirit has regenerated your heart, has, has ignited your passions in your heart and your, and your thoughts towards pleasing him. In other words, his Spirit dwells in you, by definition, you have the Spirit of Christ. However, if you're not indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, by definition, you are of the flesh. And every single person on planet Earth right now is in one of those two categories. There is no middle ground. There is no ambiguity there is no one foot in one and one foot or the other. There's no polite distance. There, 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 there's no sort of some, you know, a sort of intelligent uh, reasoning detachment, right? It's either one or the other. And what Paul wants to make clear here is that the flesh and the spirit are in reconcilable conflict with one another. And for every person, one of the two will prevail. Listen to what Galatians 5.17 says. Paul says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, literally at enmity, at war with one another. Now, the word for flesh that Paul uses, sarx in the Greek, really refers to just our whole corrupted, unredeemed nature. That's what he means. He, he's using it as a way, a shorthand way to refer to our 
sin-dominated self. That every single one of us in the history of planet Earth, by virtue of our union with Adam, who acted as our representative, when Adam fell, we all fell. We were all born into the flesh. And Paul gives a very stark description of what that means. So look, look at verses 7 through 9 for a second. First of all, Paul says, for those who are in the flesh, they're first hostile to God. Secondly, he says, they don't submit to God's law. Indeed, he says, they cannot. And, and probably one of the most stark statements in all of Scripture that is very sobering, if you think about it. He says this in verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, that's an astounding statement because when you look at the scope of religious history, when you think about those who are spiritually oriented, searching, Paul says, you cannot move towards God one iota to please him. You, you do not have the capacity to honor and glorify God in the flesh. Now, understand something. This doesn't mean, right, that people without God's spirit or non-Christians can't do good things, can't do outwardly moral things. So, so look at what's happened over the past two weeks. People, I mean, it takes, it's a unique thing that unites the world, is it not? It's a very unique thing. But somehow, most of the world has somehow become united around this idea that, that what Russia is doing in relationship to Ukraine is a travesty. It's a, it's a, it's a humanitarian crisis. It's an atrocity. It's, it's evil. It's death. It's sinful. And somehow people from all across all ideological and political spectrums have somehow become united in this, right? You see the little Ukraine flags in your avatar, right? Or, or, or you post and you say something about this, it seems like everybody's gotten on this train. How is that possible? Well, it's possible, Romans 2 tells us, because we are all made in the image of God. And we have the capacity to do certain things that are good. In fact, God's law is written on our hearts. There is a shared conscience across humanity of what is right and wrong. Now, understand humanity can distort it, suppress it, can, can, can turn their back on it. But sometimes, every once in a while, that image of God will just shine through, right? It will break through the darkness, and we're united around a particular thing. So that's possible for those who don't have the Spirit of Christ. But understand something, none of it ultimately pleases God. You see, People who don't have the spirit of Christ cannot please God with their good works. And the reason is, 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 I think, very fundamental. What we as humans do, even what we do that is moral or good or altruistic or, or benevolent, always is tainted by some sort of self-motivation, right? It's always tainted by the way this impacts me or the way this impacts those that I care about or, or my comforts in life or what I'm going to receive by doing this particular good thing. There's, there's always some kind of mixed motives involved. 
But the person without the Spirit of Christ, by definition, is incapable of pleasing God because what they do is not for the glory of God. That's what distinguishes those who are indwelt by the Spirit and those who are not. Now, what Paul does in this text for us, church, is he gives us kind of a diagnostic manual or or test to sort of self-evaluate. In other words, he, he wants to give a picture of what life in the Spirit versus life in the flesh looks like. So look back at the text for a second. The phrase that he uses to sort of show the the fundamental functional difference between those who have the Spirit and those who do not is seen by this phrase, set their minds on. So so look look again at the text. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Verse 7, those who are of the Spirit, or 6, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And that word, it's actually one phrase in the Greek. Okay, it's all one word. And it denotes the idea of what is it that principally absorbs all of your thoughts? What is it that principally gathers all of your interest? What is it principally that moves your emotions, that moves your, your, your heart, your mind, that preoccupies you? In other words, when you're doing something in which you're not having to answer a question or attend to this need or attend to that need, where does your mind go? What does it settle on? What does it fixate on? I love the way John Stott phrases this, and here's the quote. It's on the, it's on the screen for you. And he's talking about this phrase, set their minds on. It is a question of what preoccupies us, the ambitions which drive us and the concerns which engross us of how we spend our time and energies, of what we concentrate on and give our energies up to, all this is determined, this is so important, by who we are, whether we are still in the flesh or are now by new birth in the spirit. Guys, the person in the, Paul's is saying who's of the flesh lives to please themselves. The person is of, who's of the spirit leaves lives to please Christ. And Paul says you can gauge, okay, not omnisciently, not sovereignly, only God knows the heart. And no one knows your own heart more than you know your own heart. But God is even greater than our hearts. But this gives us a diagnostic, a tool for understanding what is it that primarily animates my life? What is my driving ambition? What grabs my attention, my focus, my heart? And this reveals to us what our baseline motivational system is. And it says those who are of the Spirit are in the Spirit. Those who do not have the Spirit are in the flesh. Now let me say a couple of things about this. And we've been talking about this from Romans 7. This doesn't mean that believers don't struggle with sin. It doesn't mean that believers can't sin grievously. It doesn't mean that there cannot be extended seasons of hardness of heart where it appears that someone has set their minds on the flesh. We look no further than King David, right? That was a long season. 
He committed murder as a believer. He committed adultery as a believer. He covered both of them up as a believer. He had hardened his heart. But here's the distinction. When he was confronted with his sin and the reality of of the fact that he was living his life in a way that was incongruous for who he truly was, he wasn't okay with it. He, he, He was stricken in his heart. And what does he say at that moment? Against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. And so those who have the spirit of Christ are not okay with sin. They're troubled by sin. Even when they're struggling with sin, their purest heart's desire at the bottom is, I wish I wasn't struggling with this. Lord, help me. And and our cry is the same one Paul gives at the end of Romans 7. Who will save me from this wretched body of sin and death? May it be Jesus. Now let me say a second thing about this idea of being indwelt with the Spirit as a believer. It doesn't mean that you don't sin. It just means that you're not okay with sin. But the second thing is, if you are a Christian, if you placed your faith in Christ, please understand something. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your heart. God is now not just with you, he's actually in you. There is no such thing, please hear this, and and depending upon your denominational theological background, this, this may or may not sort of express some of your experience with the theology of the Holy Spirit. Guys, there's no such thing as a Christian who has the Spirit versus a Christian who doesn't have the Spirit, okay? There's no such thing as a Christian who's been baptized with the Spirit versus a Christian who hasn't. Guys, that's a false teaching. It's a false theology. It's driven many Christians to despair. It goes completely against the Word of God. For example, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Listen to what Paul says. For in one Spirit we were, how many? All baptized into one body. Every one of us. Gifts are different, absolutely. God's given different different gifts, but one spirit. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now let me just encourage you with this, church. The Holy Spirit does not move in and out of you. The Holy Spirit, when you mess up, when you screw up, the Holy Spirit doesn't turn around and say, no spirit for you, right? He... He's he's not saying, I'm walking away, I'm done, you've grieved me, you've resisted me. Once the Spirit of Christ indwells you, nothing, nothing can undo that. The Spirit of Christ has taken up permanent residence in your heart. He is with us. He doesn't abandon us. And the fact that we grieve him, and we can grieve him, and we can resist him, But even that is a sign that he's living in us. Guys, if the Spirit wasn't living in you, you wouldn't be grieved. If the Spirit wasn't living in you, um, you wouldn't feel that disfellowship and distance and resistance. But the question is that all of us have to come to face to face with is simply this. Before we can try to change, before we can try to, to grow, before we turn over a new leaf, before we do the, it's gonna be, Different this time, Pastor Paul. I, I've, I've made resolution after resolution, resolution, but I know this time it's going to be different. The most fundamental 
question, the crucial issue is simply this, what kind of person are you? Are you a person of the flesh? Or are you a person of the spirit? And this is something you don't have to be in doubt about. Jesus says, come to me. You're, you're tired of your sin. You're tired of your, you're, you're frustrated. Um, you're, you're full of anxiety. You're full of worry. You're full of anger. You're full of bitterness. You feel like you're a flesh. Jesus says, come to me. I will give you rest. And knowing what kind of person you are doesn't just determine what kind of life you will live. And these are all themes that we'll return to in Romans 8. But it also determines what kind of death you will one day be facing. And that's Paul's second point here. Let's look at this quickly. Two kinds of death. Now, this is a sobering verse, verse 10. But it's simultaneously an incredibly hopeful verse. And here's what Paul says in verse 10. He says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Okay? There, there's, there's two things going on inside of you right now if you are a Christian. And you need to be fully aware and cognizant of both of these things. First of all, the Holy Spirit lives in you and is conforming you to the image of Christ. He is making you dead to sin, alive to righteousness. He's given you spiritual life. He's in, he indwells you. He convicts you. He leads you. He comforts you. He cares for you. And he will do that um, continually throughout every moment of this life. While at the same time, right, the very same time, your body, your outward body is fading. It is dying of sin. And so there's two things going on in every person simultaneously. And Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 16. It's, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. You've heard me say it so many times. Verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now, Paul uses the term wasting away, and the ESV commentators were very kind here, the translators. The word literally means rotting, right? So, so they just thought it probably didn't sound the best to say, though our outer self is rotting, right? Our inner self is being renewed, but that's what the word means, to rot or decay, and the reality is that all of our bodies are bound by the law of entropy. You know what entropy is. You heard it in your chemistry class, right? It's the state of going from order to disorder. It's what's happening in the, in the world that's of the flesh. It's what's happening in our bodies. My chemistry teacher always used to make this joke. It's going to take the super nerds in here to, to get it, but I'm going to go for it. He always used to say entropy is not what it used to be. Just think about it just for a second. Just think about it for a second, and you'll get it. Now, guys, we, we are a culture. Let's be honest. We are obsessed with avoiding this process. Our culture will do almost anything to delay the decay, right? We'll go to the gym. We have plastic surgery. We have state-of-the-art medical technology, exercise, the way we eat naturally, healthy, and guys, all of those things in their own context um, can be important. Paul says physical training has what? Some value, right? But we all know in our heart of hearts, right? We can't stop it. And heaven knows how hard people have tried. You know, the rumor for years and years and years was that Walt Disney had his body frozen. It's the 
science of cryogenics, right? Which sounds super creepy. Awaiting the day they would find a cure for the lung cancer that ultimately killed him. You may have seen the movie, Mel, the Mel Gibson movie, Forever Young. He was frozen in cryogenic technology for 50 years. He went in at the age of 30 and came out at the age of 30, 50 years later. It sounds cool, except then we had to watch Mel Gibson age 50 years in about two weeks on the screen, right? Not a pretty sight. So we understand this reality. Our culture is obsessed with it. But the reason, please hear this, the reason that we will never attain immortality has nothing to do with biology. It's not a biological problem. It's a spiritual problem. See, Paul says the wages of sin is death. And the, and the reality, whether we like it or not, is that even as our inside is being made alive by the Spirit of Christ, our outward self is wasting away. But here's why understanding this theology of the Holy Spirit is so important. See, what happens at salvation is God comes into our mortal bodies and he makes us alive. He changes our heart, right? He, he begins to change our affections. He begins to convict, of us, convict us of sin. He begins to, to go to work. And what happens is the Holy Spirit, Paul says, serves as sort of like a down payment or a deposit. You know, back in the 70s, I, I still remember going to J.C. Penney and Loveman's and these, these department stores, and people, when they wanted to purchase something but they didn't have enough money, what would they do? They would put it on what? Layaway, right? I see all you blue hairs. Who, you know all about layaway, right? Some of y'all still got some stuff in layaway. You need to get it out, right? You put it in layaway. You just come in day after day, and all the people here are like, say, what? Yes. You didn't just put it on the plastic. You paid in cash, and you paid it until it was done. Well, in the same way, Paul says, He's given the Holy Spirit to every believer as a down payment, as, an, as a deposit, which means it's God's assurance to you that he is not going to abandon your soul. It is God's assurance to you that despite the fact that we live in a fallen world, despite the fact that we will die, here's, here's what's amazing. Do you realize, believer, if you are trusting in Christ and the Spirit dwells in you, there's not going to be one moment between now and for all eternity where the Spirit ceases to dwell in you. Not even at death. But see, because that's what Paul says here. And this is an amazing thing. Paul says, and look down to verse 11, the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, guess what? That's the same spirit that lives in you. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that's the same spirit that's going to raise you from the dead. It's going to raise me if we're trusting in Christ from the dead. And there's not going to be one moment, even in death, that we are separated from the spirit of God. Why is death so scary? Why is death so scary? Why is it so terrifying? And I think it's, it's not complicated, but there, there's two fundamental reasons, right? Number, number one, it's just facing the unknown. You see, no one has, has died and gone through that whole process and come back and said, let me tell you what death is like. I mean, I know there's a couple of movies and the books, but um, you get what I'm saying, right? No, no one has a firsthand account 
and comes back and says, this is what death is like, and we prepare. See, we love to prepare, right? We love to read and study, but, but, but we don't know what it's going to be like exactly. It's unknown. But second, I think this might be the big one. All of us know we will have to face death alone. There is no one, humanly speaking, that can go with us on that journey. And that is a terrifying thing, but it's a journey we all have to take. However, what Paul is reminding us here is that in actuality, we're not taking the journey alone. Actually, the Spirit of Christ dwells in us. And there's not going to be one second to separate us from, the, from, from when we are alive to when we are dead to we are in the presence of Christ. There's not one millisecond of that whole span of time that the Holy Spirit will not cease to be with you. Because the Apostle Paul had a total glimpse of this when he said, you know, when he was writing to Timothy, Timothy, everybody has abandoned me in Asia Minor. But you know who hasn't abandoned me? The Lord. The Lord stood by me. Christian, do you know that kind of assurance? That's an assurance that's only possible through the Spirit of Christ. That's, that is an assurance that you can get nowhere else. There is no, there's no school to learn it from. There's no journey to make. There's no place to go. There's no um, set of deeds in order to to do to receive that kind of assurance, that assurance only comes by virtue of the fact through Jesus Christ, who's given his spirit to us. Because one of the most read books in the whole English language next to the Bible is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And it's a metaphor, it's a story of about a boy named Christian who's making a journey to the celestial city. And towards the end of the book, Christian comes to the last great obstacle. It's the great river. It's the river of death. And the anointed ones, the angels tell him, you get to see the king, but first you have to make the journey across this river. And the river is dark and the river is scary. And you're going to have to read the book to find out what happens to Christian. He, he makes it across, right? He does. But the great promise of Romans 8 is this. Christian, he will walk soul to soul with you across that great divide. He will walk soul to soul with you across that great expanse from life to death and then finally to eternal life. And one day, the same spirit that raised Christ will raise you and unite your soul, your immaterial soul, to your made new, resurrected body, those two things will be united together. And this is why Paul can say, yes, we grieve. And guys, I know that many of you are grieving greatly in this season. You're grieving what's happening in your body. You're grieving what's happening in the world. You're grieving what's happening in your marriage. You're grieving what's happening in relationships. You're grieving what's happening with your children. But Paul says, even though we grieve, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We are hope-filled grievers. Christian, that's the assurance God desires for you. And if you do not know Christ this morning, this is an assurance he desires you to have.
just come and place your faith and trust in Jesus, who indwells us thus with his spirit. Because as we prepare our hearts for communion this morning, one of the reasons, let me tell you one of the reasons we celebrate communion on a, on a weekly basis. Um, we, we, we don't celebrate communion merely because it reminds us of what Jesus has done for us. We celebrate communion because we are walking out the reality of what Jesus is doing now with and in us. Listen to, for a second, listen to 1 Corinthians. This is going to be our preparatory text as we come to the Lord's table this morning. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That word participation, koinonia. It means intimate fellowship. And so when we come and we take the bread and the juice together, it's not simply remembering what Jesus has done for us. It's also celebrating the fact that Jesus is now with us. He's with us this morning as we take his body and his blood. He, he has indwelt us as believers. He comes and dwells with us as we come to this table, as we worship together. And Christian, he wants to assure your hearts that whatever else is going on out there, the spirit of life dwells in you. Why don't you take just a moment or two and prepare your hearts as we prepare to take the communion elements together.